Uh, we're going to continue our discussion on identity today, and, and I think it goes without saying that whenever you have conversations of identity, as we've referenced this on a couple occasions throughout the course of this series, we shape our identity through a lot of different roles that we play, right? And, and none of us just plays one role. Like a lot of times we think about our identity in terms of the jobs that we carry, the professions that we hold. For example, I'm a pastor, but before that, I was the director of Global Ministries. I've been a camp counselor. I've been an assistant project manager for commercial real estate. I started that journey in professionalism as a busboy, right? So every single time that I worked, that helps shape an understanding of who I am. But we all know, hopefully, that our identity is so much more than just the jobs that we carry or that we hold or the titles that we have, right? It's not just that I'm a pastor, but I'm also a husband, right? And my understanding of what it means to be a husband has uh, direct and profound implications on my understanding of self and identity. Uh, I'm not just a husband, I'm a son, right? Understanding the family that I come from and how I was taught and what I was raised to do, all of that helps shape my identity. So we have all these different roles that we play that give us a sense of who we are and an understanding of identity. Perhaps one of the most important roles that I've learned over the last several years that has most impacted me in the last decade in terms of identity is the fact that I am a father and what it means to be a dad, what it means to be a parent. And, and I've learned a tremendous amount of responsibility uh, in that role in understanding how that shapes my understanding of who I am and specifically the fact that as a father, as a parent, uh, God has entrusted me to teach my children very important things in life, right? The importance of faith, uh, helping them understand the importance of family, uh, how to treat others, the importance of work ethic, the importance of OU football, like very important things, like in, in, in important debates, like the fact that in and out is better than Whataburger, right? I mean, all these, th I said it, and it's true. Can I get an amen? Anyone? I'm on my own. That's okay. I'm, I'm all right with that. These are the important life lessons that you have to teach your children when they're growing up and as a parent. And so there are a lot of different life lessons that I've given my kids throughout the years. One of the ones that I've consistently had to focus on and reiterate time and time again uh, is the idea of being grateful for what you have and not what you don't have, right? That's, that's a consistent lesson that we tend to teach in our home as it relates to childhood. And this can happen and emerge in a lot of different ways, a lot of trivial ways in particular. Like uh, one of the things that we often hear in our home is we don't have any snacks, right? And I, I, don't, I don't really know how to tell you how that makes me feel when I hear those words so frequently offered in our house because what they really mean is not that I don't have any snacks. It means I don't have the specific thing that I want in this moment and you as my parent didn't anticipate my cravings. Right, what I really wanna do at some point is go in and just like wipe out the pantry, wipe out the fridge and be like, that's no snacks, right? That's what you mean when you say that, that's no snacks. So the point is, is that in a lot of different moments in life, we have to wrestle with this kind of childlike impulse where I think about the things that I don't have rather than the things that I do have. And there's some important lessons that come along the way in that. In fact, the most recent example that I can think in this regard comes from earlier this week uh, with, with my youngest son, David Wu. We, we love to read stories to our kids at night. That's one of the things we've always done. And so I was recently cleaning out or really kind of reorganizing some of the bookshelves in our home. And I came across just tons of books that we used to always read James and Annabelle, uh, but we hadn't read to Wu yet. And I was like, oh, this is a good one. And this is a good one. I just, next thing I knew, I had like a stack of 15 or 20. I was like, Wu, these are the really good books. We, we got to take some time and work through these books when we go to bed at night. And so we put this stack of books on his toy chest 
in his room. And so throughout the week, I've been saying, all right, well, you get to pick out a book that we're going to read tonight, but it's got to come from the good stack of books, the good books. And for the first few days, he was compliant. He'd go down there, he'd pick out a book. But recently, towards the end of the week, I think it was Thursday, he started to kind of not feel as inclined to pick from that selection. And so getting ready to go to bed, I say, woo, go pick out a book tonight, but pick it out from a good book. He goes, okay. He jumps down from the bed, he goes over, get the book, and then he comes over and he picks one that was not from the stack of good books, holds up a superhero book. And I've seen these types of books before. I don't know if you have. Um, They're terrible, okay? Uh, There are some children's books out there that you read and you're like, how did these get published? But maybe even more importantly, why did I purchase it? Like they, the plot is terrible, but, but it's appealing to the kids, right? It's like got this kind of cool look, the superhero look to it, but it's just, it's just not a good book. And so he wants to do this one. I said, now, woo. I said, pick one from the good stack of books. And then he starts to kind of whine a little bit, complain, but I really want to read this one, Dad. And, and in a moment, like I first thought about giving in because I'm like, you know, what he wants to read, who cares? But something within me was like, no, I, I, I don't want him to read this one. I want him to read a good book. And so I kind of pushed back. I said, no, buddy, we agreed. We're going to read one of these good books. And he kept whining, which was now my cue to kind of teach him a little bit more about gratitude and, and being grateful for what we do have and what we don't have, to which I said, well, I could just not read to you at all, right? And that, that worked, okay? So just parenting tip 101. And so he said, all right, and so he goes over and he gets a good book, and, and we made it through the evening, and he actually did enjoy it. But the reason I stuck to my guns in that moment is because I realized, uh, even subconsciously, that my job as a parent is not just to help my kids understand to be grateful for what you have and not just what you don't have, but my job is also to help them understand what is good, like that this is a good book, and I want you to see what is good, that really so much of parenting, if you think about it, is to help create an understanding and a worldview for your children for them to be able to discern and wisely identify that which is good and that which isn't, all right? And, and then that's a pretty big responsibility. And when we merge it with this, this impulse of kind of wanting the things that we don't have uh, as opposed to being grateful for the things that we do, we see a kind of a human impulse that all of us carry to long for the things that we don't have, and that that oftentimes can lead us out of an understanding of what is actually good, right? And so the reason I say this is because this is a pretty important part of identity. When you think about identity, when you think about finding meaning and significance, so much of what we're really saying we're pursuing is the good life. Like, where does my life get filled with goodness and significance? and meaning, and all those different things. That's what we want. And, and we have parents and other voices in our lives to help direct us on that path. It's a pursuit of goodness. But many times, we can lose track of it. We can wander astray. And part of what leads us in that strain is a lack of understanding of that which is good. And this is, this is the theme for our discussion today. Right? This is kind of the focus, is that what leads us astray more often than not is kind of this progression where all of a sudden we lose sight of the fact that, and and we begin to think that the good that's been provided to us is not good enough. And since it's not good enough, it's not the good that I want. And if we start living in that mindset and living in that reality, it ends up leading us to the place where we might even say that the good that has been provided to us is not good at all. Right, so connect it to our discussion on the image of God. Right? What happens is that we can fall victim to a way of thinking that eventually being made in the image of God is not good enough. I need more. 
I need to find meaning and significance in something else, something beyond that. And so being made in the image of God and all that God has provided me is not just not good enough. It's not really the good I want. I need to find it in other things. And if we begin to build our identity in that direction and on that course, if we're not careful, we will arrive at a place where we might even say that the good that we, was provided to us is not good at all. And so where we want to course correct is to find the ability to look within and recognize not just that the good that he has provided us is good enough, but it is actually the good that we want. That's what we're going to seek to establish today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're only going to be in the last verse of chapter 2, and then we're really going to be spending most of our time in Genesis chapter 3, the verse 13 verses of chapter 3. Here's what we've done. Through the course of identity, we have talked about why do we even ask the question of identity? Then we worked through how culture typically answers the question of meaning, significance, and existence. And then we began to anchor our discussion that really identity needs to be built upon this idea of being made in the image of God. So for several weeks, we've talked about what is the image of God, the implications of being made in the image of God, and how it shapes our understanding of work, of worth, of relationships. And then last week, we, we deviated a little bit out of Genesis to go to Colossians to highlight the point that when we see all that is being made in Genesis 1 and 2, it is being made in, through, and for Christ, right? That he is, he is the source, the cause, and the reason for all of this being created and he is the one that holds it all together. And so this is what we've established thus far. But as we continue through this series, we're now going to take a couple of weeks to look at the impact that the fall and the curse has had on the image of God in our lives. And today we'll look at the fall. Next week we'll look at the curse. And then we'll finish out the month of October considering how Christ redeems and restores the image in us. And that will be how we ultimately conclude this series. So today we look at the impact on the fall and how we begin to drift from the good that God has provided. So starting in chapter 2, verse 25, I'm just going to read it all through 3, verses, uh, verse 13, and then we'll talk about it little by little. 2.25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, there's so much to unpack uh, here in, in just these 14 to 15 verses that we're looking at today. And really, 
Um, there's so much throughout Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and what I've had to share with you all throughout the course of this series is that uh, there are a lot of implications in the creation story that we haven't gotten to in our series because we're really just trying to look at it all through the lens of being made in the image of God, and that's what we're going to do today is how does this fall influence our understanding of the image of God, and how does it lead us astray from recognizing the sufficiency of being made in his image, okay? So we're just going to walk through it line by line. Verse 25 says, and his, uh, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This really is meant to be a transitional statement, right? What the author is preparing the audience is, is for the drastic contrast that's about to take place from this moment where all has been created, all has been provided, he's given a garden, he's given food, he's done all these different things, and we're going to see just how far uh, Adam and Eve begin to fall, okay? And so what we see describing uh, the state of this, this initial provision in the garden is a shamelessness, right? There is this freedom, this, this beauty in the way in which they had this relationship with God and with one another, but all of that is about to change. And what causes this change is an introduction of the serpent. Okay, now the serpent is described here at the beginning as being more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now the word crafty uh, can also be uh, defined as being clever. And and by using that word, part of what we're anticipating in in the theme or what it's establishing is a theme for this story uh, related to wisdom, right? Cleverness, craftiness, uh, a pursuit of wisdom, and ultimately whose voice is going to decide what wisdom really is. Is it going to be the serpent? Is it going to be the Lord? But this idea that the serpent is crafty and clever introduces this idea and this theme of wisdom that becomes a pretty significant marker for the whole story. And so the the serpent is crafty. And then uh, what does the serpent say? We see the first expression of the cleverness of the serpent when he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what would leap off the page for us if we were hearing this or reading this in the original language that we don't necessarily see in the English is the way that the serpent refers to God. Okay, um, Genesis 1 and 2, over and over and over again, when we see a reference to God and and, and who who it is that's making and creating, the Hebrew term that's used for God in Genesis 1 and 2 is consistently Yahweh, right? This is the sacred name of God, the the name that even the Israelites wouldn't even uh, consider to utter and say themselves out of reverence for this God, as holy as it was, as sacred as it was, but it was that term that was often used to demonstrate the covenantal relationship between God and his people. It is a significant term. So over and over and over again, uh, we see Yahweh as the one that's creating, and then all of a sudden the serpent speaks, and it's no longer Yahweh, it's Elohim. He uses a different word for God. And it's really interesting, right? He still uses a word that that means God, but in using Elohim, it's a more generic description of God, and it's one that seems to minimize and diminish this idea of God's covenantal relationship, right? The relational nature, the covenantal aspect of who God is, the reverence and the sacred uh, reality of who God is, he's, he's distorting just ever so slightly, ever so subtly, the view and the understanding of who God is. And here's the significance of that. When our understanding of God's identity changes or is diminished, it will have a direct impact on our understanding of our own identity, right? Because if we're gonna say that we're made in the image of God, 
right? And that that is a foundational aspect of who we are. If all of a sudden God means less, then being made in his image means less. And so by the serpent referring to him as Elohim, he creates this distance from God. He creates a different picture of God and embeds that in the thinking of man and woman, right? Maybe he's not this covenantal God. Maybe he's not this Yahweh. And so that's the first step. So he first kind of alters and gets you to question who God's character really is. And then he asks the question, did God really say? And now he's getting you to ask and question God as a whole, right? And there's a, there's a certain change that's taking place here in the relational dynamic uh, that's taking place here in Genesis when, when the serpent asked him to consider what God has said. When you think about all that's been established, and Christopher Walken is, is also one that kind of helps get, create this picture all that's been established at the end of Genesis 1 and 2, it's God at the top of the triangle. Imagine this relational uh, dynamic as a triangle. God's at the top of the triangle. He's the one with the authority. He's the one with the supremacy. And then it's uh, the serpent and it's man and woman down at the base of the triangle. And they're supposed to listen to his voice. But when the serpent begins to ask, but did God really say that triangle shifts? Right? And all of a sudden now, Humanity is positioning itself to be at the top of that triangle where now God's voice and the serpent's voice is the, one that's the ones that get to be evaluated and you get to determine which one am I actually going to listen to, right? Just by asking the question, did God really say, he's, he's bringing man and woman into this place to question God's word, right? And so this relational dynamic shifts and part of the way that he does that is not just by asking what God said, but then even distorting what God said. Right? Notice what the serpent says. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Right? Well, that's, that's actually not at all what God said. If you go back and look in Genesis 1 and 2, God actually said you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. And so the, the serpent has now distorted the word of God to help call it into question. And he's distorting it in such a way that's going to further establish this relational shift in the dynamic. And so before we kind of further evaluate this distortion, I want to make sure that we understand one of the ways that we guard against this in our life today is by knowing the Word of God, right? To, to, to have such a love and a thirst for it and a commitment to it that we can immediately respond when we recognize its distortion. When we hear something that doesn't align with the character of God or who He is or the Word of God, like when we do that, it keeps that relationship uh, back in the way that it was intended to be, where God maintains the authority and we continue to listen and trust his voice rather than question it, right? So you have to commit yourself to knowing the word of God. But he distorts it, calls it into question, right? Says something different. And he says, isn't it true uh, that God didn't allow you to do anything uh, to, to eat any of these trees? And by asking that question, he's doing something else that's really uh, problematic and a, and a pretty important theme in this particular part of the message uh, he's now getting you to question not just what God said, but he's getting you to question his provision. If there's anything that we see about God through Genesis 1 and 2, it is that he is an incredible provider, right? Time and time again, he is providing, right? He, he provides um, responsibility. He, he provides food. He provides a garden. He provides a helper. Over and over again, we see God is a provider and that all of his provision is good. But this question, this distortion begins to imply that God didn't provide for you. He actually withheld from you, right? He's restricted you, 
right? And that's what begins to lead us down this path, right? Whether or not we see God as a provider and one who gives or one who withholds, right? And that's kind of the first step. Change our sense of his identity and get us to question whether or not he really provides. And if we can begin down that path, it's going to lead us down to an eventual place where we begin to wonder if the good that's been provided is actually good enough. So he gets him to question his provision, gets, him to see, gets Adam and Eve to see something different. And so now we see Eve's response. The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So she corrects him. Here's what he really said. The one that we can't eat from is the one in the middle of the garden. We can't eat from it and we can't touch it. If we do, we'll die. Now, what you'll notice is that if you were to compare what Eve's response is to what God says in Genesis 1 and 2, she's added a component, right? Now she said you're not even allowed to touch it, which is not what God said in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's what we don't know. We don't know if, if Eve is just expounding on something that we weren't aware of. Like this could just be new insight, right? That, that this did actually take place. This is how God said it, but we just didn't realize it until Eve recounted that part of the conversation in this moment. It could have unfolded that way. Or it could be that she's added kind of her own interpretation to this restriction. Either way, what we see is that the serpent's craftiness is, is gently and appropriately or, or successfully, I should say, leading her to a place where her mind is thinking about what has been withheld rather than what has been given, right? And so that's kind of that first beginning point where she begins to see not so much what he has done, but what he hasn't done. And I want to ask you a question um, in terms of where you are in your relationship with God and how you typically seem. Do you tend to think about what he has done and what he has provided, or do you find yourself more thinking about what he has not done? and what he has not provided. And how is that impacting your relationship with him? Right, we can see that she is now beginning to really wrestle with and beginning to think through the things that maybe God has withheld, that maybe what he provided wasn't good enough, and that is what primes her for the rest of the deception. So the serpent re responds and comes back. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So his first response, no, you won't die. So notice the progression. We've gone from distorting God's word to disputing God's word. And that's typically what happens. And we can see this play itself out in culture, in our own world, over and over and over again. That it begins by first wondering who God really is, questioning his word, um, seeing it may be distorted, and then eventually the word is disputed. It's no longer that God said something different. It's that God actually lied to you. What he told you was wrong. And people arrive at this, this conclusion a lot in our lives and in our world where we begin to arrive at a place where we look at God, we say, I don't, I don't like what the Bible has to say. I don't what this gospel has to say. I don't like what the implications are of this particular faith. I think God is wrong. And that's what the serpent, that's what the deception is trying to guide the human heart to ultimately believe, right? It's no longer just distortion. We're going to dispute it, right? And so now that it's being disputed, look at what the serpent says. He says, God knows this again. He's hiding something from you, right? He's not providing from you. He knows something that you don't. He knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You're going to get more than what you used to have. You're going to see things even more than what you currently do. How? You will be like God. 
Now, there's a tremendous amount of irony in that statement, isn't there? Because time and time again through Genesis 1 and 2, we have seen over and over again that man and woman are already like God. They were made in his likeness, made in his image. But what the serpent is getting them to see is that it wasn't enough, right? You weren't enough in his likeness. You weren't enough in his image. That if you do this, you'll get to be even more like God than what he has already given you, right? It gets to be even greater than what maybe you currently have. And so he's leading them down that path that the good that's been provided is not good enough. And here's ultimately what the serpent is trying to do. If, if he can get man and woman in a place where we don't think that there's a sufficiency in what's been given to us by God, right, then there's only one other place that we can turn to find meaning and significance. If it's not from our creator, then the only other place that we can find meaning, the only other place that we can find significance, the only other place that we can find any sort of purpose and identity is through the world. And so if God's not enough, if his image isn't enough, then the only other place I go is to created things. And that's idolatry, right? And that's the path that leads us away and begins to fracture that relationship, right? God knows that if you, if you do this, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, and specifically knowing good and evil. This is this idea of pursuing wisdom, right? That it's not just some um, uh, command that's been disobeyed. It's not just some transgression that is taking place. This is about uh, humanity's quest for wisdom, a specific wisdom related to knowing good and evil, that specifically man and woman want to determine what is good and evil for themselves, independent and apart from God, right? And that's the heart of sin, if you really think about it. These these moments in our lives where we make this ultimate determination where we say, I know what God's word says, I'm going to dispute his word, I'm going to distort his word, I'm not going to worry about his identity, I'm going to decide that this is good for myself, right? Whatever greed is, whatever lust is, whatever gossip is, I'm going to be the one that determines whether it's good or evil. And that's what leads us down this path towards sin, right? And it's this quest for a wisdom that gets to decide what is good, what is evil, apart from our Father. And so we see that the temptation has been fully uh, explained now, and we now get to see the response to the woman. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, look at the strange. What God has said is not good. What God has prohibited and what he said is not good, a uh, woman now says it is good. Right? Like, it's a complete change. I'm, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to totally have a different conclusion from what God has said. And not only that, it's now pleasing to the eye. It's no longer based upon that which I've heard from the voice of God, but that which I see from my own eyes. I'm trusting my own eyes more than I'm trusting the word of God. And this is desirable for gaining wisdom. This is now what I want. And so now the next step in the progression has taken place. The good that God has provided is not good enough, and so now it's no longer the good that I want. I want something else something else that is now pleasing to the eye, something else that I see to be desirable. And so what does she do? She took some, she ate, and she gave. It happens so quick. The act itself happens almost in rapid succession. She takes, she eats, she gives. And when she gives, we notice a pretty important aspect that Adam has been there the whole time. 
It's not like she's been operating independently. They're, they are right there together. He's listening to the same things. They are going to engage in this sinful disobedience together. She takes, she eats, and she gives, and she acts on this deception that has led her heart astray. And when she does, we get to see how things begin to come to fruition. We see the fallout from it. It says then in verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened. In an odd twist, what the serpent had said kind of comes true, but in a way that they didn't anticipate. They realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So their eyes are open and part of what we discover now is that the opening of their eyes is not just to a greater good that they thought was being withheld, but they're actually able to see a certain evil, right? Now they, now they have a certain consciousness for disobedience, and that's really explained and emphasized with the word naked here. Uh, I told you we were gonna come back to it from verse 25, but the, the reference in verse 25 and the word that is used in verse 25 is different than the one that appears in 3.7. And the one in 25 is, is a more simple, straightforward term uh, that just creates a certain consciousness of your physical appearance. The one in 3.7 is one that is used repeatedly in the Old Testament in places like Deuteronomy 28:48 that reference an awareness of God's judgment. Like it's, it's a vulnerability, it's a shamefulness that now takes place. And so this is used, the different terms that are used here, the author is demonstrating just how far, how far uh, this fall is really occurring. Right, that now they realize uh, the grievous nature uh, the egregious nature of their disobedience, they realize their sinfulness and it begins to lead them astray. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That is now impacting their understanding of their relationship with God, how they wanna be seen before God and how they even understand one another. Before there was no shame, now they need to cover one another. We already begin to see the impact of finding something outside, trying to seek a goodness outside of what God intended. And that really becomes the theme for the next several verses, is the impact to the extent to which these relationships that were so good initially are now significantly altered. It says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So here they are, they're, they're filled with this shame. They hear the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Uh, what does that mean? A lot of people have tried to identify the cool of the day as to be a particular time during the day that this occurred, uh, like was it the cool of the morning, the cool of the evening. Uh, there's really nothing within the text that gives us any sort of clue as to the specific time where this occurred. Cool of the day, the, the actual Hebrew word there is the word for wind. So it could also be translated as the wind of the day. And that seems to speak a little bit more to God's presence kind of conjures up similar ideas that you may encounter when you're reading like Job 38.1 that says the Lord's call to Job out of the storm, right? It's almost like God reveals his, his presence. He begins to pursue them out of the wind of the presence of the Lord, right? And so as they feel the wind of the Lord, as they feel this, this movement taking place, they decide to hide, right? They begin to hide among the trees of the garden. This relationship is so drastically different. If I can bring your attention all the way back to when we were talking about when God provided the garden and we said that, man, uh, that God put man in the garden, that that word put conjured up the idea of peace and God's presence and his protection and his rest. Like that's how the relationship was. Now they're hiding from him, right? The trees initially 
were there uh, for food, for provision. They were a goodness. Now they're being used as a shelter to hide from the one who gave them to them. How drastically this relationship has changed. They're hiding from God. And so he calls out and he says, where are you? And we'll come back to this here in a little bit. He says, where are you? And we hear Adam's response. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So both the man and the woman's response turns into the blame game, right? Nobody takes ownership for their specific actions, right? The woman blames the serpent, but I want to call your attention to specifically man's response here. And how he, he says, the woman you put here, the woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate it. And what is really chilling about that statement is this final step of the regression that we've talked about. That now we have this moment where mankind is looking back at God and he's ultimately saying, the helper that you provided to me wasn't really any help, it was actually the source of my trouble. Right? What, what you said would be good, what you said you'd provide for me, actually is the reason I'm in this predicament. And what a drastic shift we've seen in these few pages. And that statement, I think, is indicative of, of where this progression, when we're led astray and we begin to build our identity in something other than what God has intended can ultimately lead us. Right? It's not just that the good he's provided is not good enough, and then it's not the good that I want, that eventually I will see it as not good at all. And that's where Adam now is. All that you, it, what you provided, this helper, it wasn't good. How many times do we find ourselves in certain seasons of life where we begin to question God's provision? Not just is it there, but that what he's done, he's the reason for our predicament where our blame begins to fall upon his shoulders and we call him into question. And when we arrive at that place, that triangle that's shifted now seems to be firmly um, attached to a place where we now feel like we have the right to judge God and to question God and to be like, what you've done isn't good enough. It's not good at all. And what a remarkable change that is from Genesis 1 and 2. And that's where the progression leads, right? It's ever so subtle. It's ever so gentle and simple. But that's what gets us to this place where we begin to think, ah, what he's given us isn't good enough. So it's not what I want. And then when we actually pursue what we want and we find ourselves empty, who do we blame? We don't take ownership for ourselves, but we cast the blame on God. Now, what you designed, what you created, man, it wasn't good enough. So how could I ever love a God like that? And it's all because of this progression. Rather than taking ownership for our own decisions, acknowledgement of our own impulses that lead us astray, we find ourselves stuck in this whole new reality. And that becomes the summarization of the story, is that the incredible change in the fractured relationship between what God has created and, and man and woman and even creation, right? That now their relationship with God himself looks different, their relationship with each other looks different, their relationship with all of creation looks different all because they've led astray pursuing something else. And so we all find ourselves 
um, vulnerable to this sort of a deception, this sort of wandering, this sort of strain. Right? And this is part of why we have to recognize the way that it can happen, right? the way that it can, it can occur in our own lives, that when we have a, an unrealistic view or a distorted view of who God is and his character, right, and we begin to not have a good sense of the word to where we can't even recognize when it's being distorted or when it's being disputed, and that we get to a place where we begin to look for meaning and significance and build our identity no longer in what he's provided, but in something else. And so we turn to find fulfillment in created things, whatever those created things may be. And when we come up empty, when we come up empty and those things are less than satisfying and we still go through the inevitable suffering and grief and struggle that life is, is going to bring our way, that's then when we feel like we are somehow in a position to call God into question. And that's the way that we can often fall victim to. That's that distorted view of identity that we have to guard against. So how do we guard against it? Well, that's part of what we'll unpack as we finish through the rest of this series, but here's what I'll offer to you this morning as a conclusion. If it begins with a misunderstanding of who God is, then maybe that's the first step to course correction, to not lose sight of Yahweh and who he is and what he means to us. And I want to accentuate his character by drawing your attention back to verse 9. The Lord God called to man, where are you? I wonder how you read that verse. I wonder how you picture it unfolding. I know for me, as I've read it in the past, it's hard not to imagine God being really upset or frustrated. Right? And, and you can almost picture this this uh, almost emotional response where he's like, where are you, you know, and kind of be, read it with that sense of fear. But as I was reading it most recently and studying, that's not how I picture God at all in this moment. I hear a gentleness to the question. I hear a genuine concern for his children, right? That, that in this moment, while they are in the middle of sin, rebellion, shame, hiding, withdrawing from God, we have a God that pursues them and says, where are you? He's looking for them. What you have here in verse 9 is this incredible picture where we see not just this all-powerful creator God that has designed all these things so intricately and beautifully and wonderfully, we get a glimpse that our God is a redeemer God who seeks the lost, right? That verse nine shows us our God is the God that's going to ask, where are you? To the extent that when he looks upon humanity caught in all of its sin, all of its shame, all of its brokenness, he's gonna take on flesh and dwell among us and take on the person of Jesus Christ to declare to his people, where are you? And he's gonna give us a savior a Messiah that's going to teach us that our God is the sort of God that will leave the 99 to find the one and ask, where are you? And point you to his love, point you to his faithfulness, point you to his covenant, that the God that calls out, where are you, is not Elohim, it's Yahweh. The God of a covenant, a God of compassion, a God of grace that is going to seek and save that which is lost. That's who he is. That's the good that he provides to you. A Christ who pays it all 
that we could have this relationship restored and brought back into a fullness and a wholeness with him. And so let us see God for who he is. And when we do, that's when we can guard against the strain and we can find our lives and our identity in a perfect place where though we won't be perfect, we'll make mistakes, but our hearts will be uniquely positioned to recognize in fullness and adoration and in worship that the good God provides is good enough. That Jesus is the fullness of the good of the God who redeems and saves the lost. He is the good, not just that is enough, but he is the good that we want. May he be our heart's desire today and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we are so grateful that you are a God that calls to us. And I pray that as we gather here this morning in this time of prayer, in this moment, God, we would hear your voice again, asking each and every heart, where are you? And God, for your people that are before you now in this sacred moment, that they would respond and they would answer. For those of us that have been trying to hide, that we would come forward and we would confess it. For those of us that have been trying to blame you or call you into question, we would take ownership for our rebellion and we would come before you in humility. For those of us that are, are longing for you, pursuing you, God, wherever we are, we come before you in so many different stories and so many different situations and contexts, but each of us would hear your voice today and see that you're a God that seeks us out. And that rather than running, <laughs> rather than thinking that what you provided isn't enough, or that it's not what we want, or that it isn't good, God, that you would call us back to a greater understanding of who you are, of what Christ has done, and it would be the sole focus and object of our affections. It would be the sole focus of our desire. And that through our life and through our our consistent response to you through our worship, through everything that you've given to us, God, we can point back to a God that redeems and seeks and saves the lost and restores the image that you've given us, that it becomes the goodness that shapes who we are each and every day. So God, bring us back to you. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.